Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part 57 in our series on the Gospel of John. Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer uh, for unity. We're going to look at how unity is, is not an option, but really is a sign to the rest of the world that we are under the Lordship of Jesus and why we need to take that so seriously in our relationships with one another and the church. Don't forget that you can check out our online devotionals Monday through Friday going through the season of Lent at NorthShoreVineyard.org under the uh, tab of 40 Days of Faith. Well, let's go ahead and head to the talk. Thanks for listening. North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington. Familiar with the events that happened on uh, September 11th, 2001. I think for my generation, it's probably up there with with what you know JFK in, in the baby boom generation. Um, it's just one of those events that is seared into our conscience, uh, our consciousness. Um, and as as horrible as those events that happened that morning was, there was a num- another very memorable event that happened later that day. And I'm sure those of you who were glued to your TVs like I was uh, remember this, this very rare occurrence that happened around 7.45 p.m. that evening. The members of Congress, both the House and the Senate, got together on the steps of, of the Capitol. And the, the Speaker of the House you know, gave a response to the terrorist attacks. A few other people spoke. And then... As they were exiting the steps, do you remember what happened? Somebody spontaneously, it wasn't choreographed like most political things. Somebody spontaneously began to sing God Bless America. And within just a couple of seconds, it was two or three people. And then pretty soon, everybody stopped exiting. They all just stood there. Republicans and Democrat, people who the day before were hating on each other. And they all just started singing, God bless America. There is something bigger than Republican and Democrats. It's being American, right? And I remember that moment. Just, and it was just, you remember watching that just getting chills? Like, wow. Or is it just me? Okay. I remember thinking, watching these Congress people seeing God bless America united together. Like, I, it was just this thought of like, Wow. Who can stand in our way now, right? Like this is, this, is, this is a sign of the, this is the end of the world as we know it. I've never seen Democrats and Republicans gather in the same place and sing a song with so much unity. I mean, it's just like they were, they were together. And when we get these little glimpses, they, they don't happen often in our world, but when we get these little glimpses, I believe they, they, they resonate with us so much because not only are they powerful in this world, but they, they are echoes, of, of the future that God is drawing us towards. How many of y'all remember when, when we started this church? It was back in 2000. I feel like Chris, Chris Farley. <laughs> remember back when? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> remember back when the Saints were going to the Super Bowl? <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> remember when Drew Brees threw that touchdown? That was cool. Uh, 
I introduced my kids to that skit the other night on Saturday Night Live. Um, we had fun with it. Um, but back in 2009, we, we were doing the test kitchen version of North Shore Vineyard, which we were not opening it up to the public. We, we, it, was like, it looked more like a tailgate party. People brought their little chairs, and uh, it, was, it was fun. But it was right when the Saints were, were, you know, 2009, the fall, they were, it's like they kept winning games, and there was like, wow. And I remember, I think it was after they won their, their, their final championship game that, that, that had them going towards the Super Bowl, I remember hearing, uh, I think it was Garland Robinette on uh, WWL Radio, and he was remarking about being in New Orleans during this game, and he's like, it was crazy. People were just l- nice. Everybody, like, like and, and he even pulled up crime statistics. Like, there was no crime in New Orleans that night. Even that week that followed, like, even criminals, like, gave up crime. Like, it didn't matter if you were rich, poor, uh, black, white, which side of the town you were from, even whether you were into organized crime or not, like everybody just agreed that getting behind the saints was a good thing. And it was a, a, a and, and Garland Robinette, he was just like, this is just crazy. I've never seen such, it, it was just like he was in awe of it. And, and I believe, again, that's, that's another window into what happens when people come together. I, I think probably the, the thing that has changed my life more than anything was seeing the church post-Katrina in the New Orleans area. I had the opportunity uh, of being involved with a lot of the relief stuff that was happening uh, in, in the immediate days and, and even months and years after Katrina and getting to work with teams from all around the United States who were coming in. I remember another WWL uh, morning show host, Bob Del Giorno, getting on the radio about, I think it was a few months after Katrina, and he was talking about how his mother, who lived on the Gulf Coast, she had lost her home because of the storm surge. And she had tried calling FEMA for weeks, never got a response. Tried dealing with the local government. They were just so swamped, they couldn't do anything. She even tried the Red Cross. Nobody was showing up to help her. And she'd go out there every day. She couldn't do anything for herself. All of a sudden, one day, uninitiated, uninvited, a group of, a, a, a church youth group shows up. And they just start helping her. They feed her a hot meal. They start taking, take, you know, helping her clear through her stuff and get things back on. And, and he was just obviously very shaken on the radio that morning. I hear him. And, and he said, you know, there is an untold story of, of Katrina. Because the church isn't going around doing a press conference every time they do something good like some of the politicians. The church is just doing what the church does. It's going out there and getting things done, helping people. And he's the only person I really remember hearing during that time who said anything about the church because it was true. It's kind of like, it reminded me of what Jesus said. You know, the kingdom of God is like yeast going through a, a, a loaf of dough, a loaf of dough, a, a batch of dough. And he said, you know, that's what the kingdom of God's like. You can see the evidence of it. The, the, the dough is affected by it, but you, it's hard to see what's going on. And what I saw in post-Katrina in the church that was so amazing to me was that you had Pentecostals working with Baptists. You had Baptists working with Catholics. You had all these people who normally would be very divided along doctrinal lines. All of a sudden, they put that stuff aside, and they focused on the main thing about loving the community, loving people right where they're at. 
And I tell you, I think that that was one of the biggest testimonies that I've seen in my days of being a Christian. It was one of the biggest testimonies to, wor- to the world about that there is a God. <laughs> you know, we, we evangelicals, I, I speak for myself. I know statistically probably 80% of the people in here grow up Catholic. But I didn't grow up Catholic, so I've got a different kind of baggage. I grew up evangelical. And, and, and I say, you know, evangelicals, I, I love certain things about evangelicals, but, but sometimes evangelicals are the most divisive people in our world because, you know, the, the, there's something about being opinionated and letting people know what you think. <laughs> um, and evangelicals are known for telling people how much God loves them. You know, God, God loves you. He wants you to be with him. But oftentimes, evangelicals, we, we, we tend to, to, to be very divisive, not to, to listen to other people. And what I saw post-Katrina was, whether you were Catholic, Evangelical, Baptist, I saw these people, and, and instead of talking about opinions, instead of arguing about predestination or post-destination or end times or women in ministry or any of the hot-button issues of the day, people just grabbed hammers, they passed out meals, they just did the stuff. And I think the world was a better place for that. And that brings me to, I, I say these, very, these, these examples because today we're going to talk about one of the prayers of Jesus. There are a few prayers from Jesus in, in the Gospels, and, and this is one of the most powerful prayers. This comes from John 17. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter today because it's just a lot to read. So we're going to focus in on John 17, 22 through 26, and I'm reading from the message this morning. Jesus says this, I'm praying not only for them, my disciples but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them, so they'll be as unified and together as we are, I in them and you in me. Then they'll be mature in this oneness and give this godless world evidence that you sent me and love them in the same way that you love me. Father, I want those you gave me to be with me right where I am so that they can see my glory, the splendor you gave me, having loved me long before there ever was a world. Righteous Father, the world has never known you, but I've known you, and these disciples know that you sent me on this mission. I have made your very being known to them, who you are and what you do. And I continue to make it known so that your love for me might be in them exactly as I am in them. How many of you know that if Jesus prays for something, it's probably important, right? I mean, can we agree on that? (laughs) If Jesus prays for something, it's probably because we need prayer in that area. And Jesus prays for unity. And I, be, I believe that, that the reason he prays is because that's one of the hardest things to come by in humanity and particularly in the church. But central to this prayer is the idea of the testimony of the church to the world about Jesus. You know, as evangelicals, uh, we like to tell people, I, I, I speak myself, as an evangelical, I like to tell people a lot what I think about God and the Bible and my opinion on this and that. 
And I think most evangelicals are very concerned with mission and outreach and things like that. And that's what I love about evangelicals. It's not, we're not just going to meet together in a room and talk about God. We want to go out there and proclaim the good news. But what Jesus gets out here, one of the biggest testimonies that there is a God and his name is Jesus is in our unity. The biggest testimony that there is a God is, is demonstrated in our relationships with one another. I've said this before, but I believe, you know, one of the, the, the biggest testimonies of the early church is that the early church was made up of all kinds of people that wouldn't get together in regular society. Masters and slaves didn't hang out. And yet the church was made up of slave owners and slaves. Jews and Gentiles didn't hang out like it was taboo. The church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Men and women didn't hang out. But, but, but in the church, Paul says in Christ, there's, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. But Christ is all in all. The church was an incredible testimony to the, to the world around them that there is a new king. And in his kingdom, it doesn't matter where you've been born, what your circumstances. The only identifier that truly matters is Jesus Christ. And I believe still to this day, that's the biggest testimony when you get people that are black, white, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, young, old, who all gather under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who seek unity, who are in relationship with each other, and there's no other reason why they'd be together, that, that tells the world there is a God, and his name is Jesus. And this is what Jesus gets at. He says, then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. When these guys are unified, then the world's going to believe. I believe one of the biggest reasons why most of the world or much of the world today doesn't believe in Jesus is not because our failure to tell Jesus, tell people who Jesus is. It's our failure to demonstrate what it means to come under his lordship as a community of people. In America, we, we love our individualism, right? We pride ourselves on that, right? Evangelical church tells you, you know, you got to have a personal relationship with God. I agree with that. But you got to have more than a personal relationship with God. The New Testament doesn't talk a whole lot about a personal relationship with God. It talks a whole lot about your relationship with God with other people. Don't shout me down now. In the ministry of Jesus, do you realize in Jesus' inner circle, the 12 people that, that began to follow Jesus, the disciples, uh, Jesus gathered people who wouldn't have hung out together normally. You have Simon the Zealot. He would have been like a, a right-wing you know, guy. You've got Matthew the tax collector who was probably very big government. You know, uh, He had a government job. Uh, you had Judas Iscariot, who I said that name before a couple months ago, that Iscariot was referred to a, an, an order of, of highly zealous people who wanted to overthrow the government. They're like the type, type that would bomb the government. Then you had working class fishermen, like all these kind of people that, that you shouldn't put together in a group. And Jesus gathers his group of, of these kinds of people. Then in the ministry of Jesus, uh, Jesus had little or no standards with who he'd eat dinner with. You know, thank God, Right? Like, anybody could eat at the table of Jesus. You could be a prostitute, a drunk, a corrupt tax collector. You could eat at the table of Jesus. Like, that was, that was cool. It was revolutionary. It gave Jesus a bad reputation. He was, the, the Jewish people were like, you know, the rabbis and stuff, they're like, 
do you know who you're hanging out with? He's like, yeah. And then we say on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God pours out, and, and Peter gets up, and what does Peter use to describe what's happening? He says, he quotes a, a prophecy from the, God, the book of, of Joel in the Old Testament, a prophetic book. In Joel 2, uh, 28, it says, in the last days I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Say that with me. All flesh. See, up to that point in history, there'd been a handful of people, Jewish men, who'd had the Spirit of God poured out on them. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he gets up, he says, in the last days, this, this is something that was prophesied by Joel, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, men, women, young, old, even on servants, the lowest of the low in that society, even servants, even on women service, servants, they're going to get in on the Spirit of God. So we see that, that when God is moving, he's always drawing people to him from all kinds of different backgrounds. We see that the early church is made up of people from all kinds of different places. And we see even in the book of Revelation, uh, in, in uh, Revelation 7, it says, uh, the, gospel, uh, the apostle John says this, I saw a huge crowd, too huge to count. Everyone was there from all nations and tribes and races and languages. We see that, that, that the coming kingdom is made up of people from all things. But I want to say one little rabbit trail here. When we talk about unity in the church, we're not talking about uniformity. God does not want us to all be clones, okay? He's not, ex- he, he's not expecting us to all look. Even in the coming kingdom, we see that there are people worshiping in their own language, their own ethnicity, their own culture. And that's pretty cool. God, so, so this unity in Christ is unity in diversity, it is gathering many into one. Or as Paul would use the analogy quite often, that, that unity is like a, a body, that we're different parts, but we're all part of the same body. We all have different functions, but we're all connected to the same thing. So unity is utmost important. Jesus prays for it. it it's, it's been one of the biggest testimonies of the church throughout history and, and, and even shining moments today. And I still believe it's the key to evangelism in, in this day and age. So what threatens to undermine unity in the church? Well, I think the first thing that threatens it is pride. I love this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis wrote, Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think they are beneath his dignity, that is, by pride. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting you up in the dictatorship of pride. This explains a lot of my early journey as a Christian. <laughs> you know, when I first became a Christian, I, I, w- I was doing the you know, whole sex, drugs, rock and roll thing. And when I came to Christ, I was about 20 years old. I repented of those things, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the straight and narrow, I'm not going to do that stuff anymore, and so I repented of that stuff, I stopped doing drugs, I stopped being promiscuous and all that stuff, and I got around a bunch of Christians, and, and, and I was very into Christianity and the Bible and all that stuff, but at that time in my life, I, I was also kind of a jerk, 
I was, I was in college ministry out at SLU over here in Hammond, and I used to love fighting with people. I, I would fight with my biology teacher about evolution. I would fight with my philosophy teacher about the reason for existence. I would fight with students in the student union about their lifestyle because it's beneath me, and, and I've overcome it with my own uh, self-sufficiency. But I was blind all the time to a sin that was even bigger than all of my moral sins that I was trying to overcome, and it was pride and self-righteousness. I was blind to that. I was looking down my nose at people. I was actually a part of a church at that time where I thought, and maybe you've been a part of a church like this, hopefully you don't feel that about this church today, but I actually thought at that time that my particular church that I was going to, like we were the only ones who knew how to read the Bible right. We had the right way of worship. I knew we were going to heaven. I wasn't, pretty, I wasn't sure about the Baptists and the Catholics and, and all these other people. I knew we were going to heaven because we had it right. And I looked down my nose at other people. I mean, I really did. Oh, you poor Baptists, you don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Oh, you poor Catholics, you know, you don't know, you know, you, you got all these weird things over there. Oh, you poor Methodists. Like, I, I mean, I just looked down my nose at everybody. And one day God began to, it wasn't just one day, it was many days, and it still leads up to this day, by the way. God began revealing that, wow, maybe I don't know as much about him as I think. And he began showing me that, you know, some of your Catholic brothers and sisters are a gift to you. Some of your Baptist brothers and sisters are a gift to you. Some of these people that that you think are, are outside of God's grace, maybe you ought to listen to them sometimes because maybe you can hear me in them. And God began really convicting me in dealing with that. And, and, and when I read this quote from C.S. Lewis, I realize that, you know, I overcame a lot of stuff in my life out of sheer determination. But the, the big thing that God wanted to deal with was my self-sufficiency, my self-righteousness, my pride. After all, you know, we, we call pride the chief of sins because it was, it was really religious pride that nailed Jesus to the cross, right? It wasn't the prostitutes and drunks that nailed Jesus on the cross, was it? It was the ones who knew it all. One of the biggest divisive issues in the church is pride. You know, when I counsel people, sometimes I get, I did, I get couples coming to me for counseling. If, they're, if people are coming for counseling and, and they already know everything, I can't help you. <laughs> if you already got it, like, why are you here? <laughs> You've already got all the answers. If, if somebody already knows everything, it's like, you, you can't do anything. When God began to deal with my pride, uh, I, I began to see a much bigger world. I began to experience God in many different ways. If you look at my bookshelf now at my, in my office at home, uh, I've got Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Anglican, uh, Pentecostals. I've got all kinds of folks that I, because I feel like everybody in the body of Christ has something to, you know, the, maybe some view on things that I can learn from. I don't have the corner of the market on truth. So pride, we need to deal with that if we're going to live in unity. You know, the, the other thing is, when I was back at that church in my early days, you know, it's, it's very, even when we would do stuff with other churches, we had to head everything up. I mean, we couldn't even do things with other churches unless we were in charge because, you know, I mean, honestly, we're the only ones who know God the right way. 
So even when it comes to, it, so it's not that even as a church that we were opposed to working with other churches. We just had to lead everything. So there's pride. Second is a failure to realize the foundation of unity, which is Jesus. My doctrine, I've been following Jesus for, I don't know, 21, 22 years. My doctrine has changed a good bit over the last 20 years. Thank God. And I I really think that doctrine, when it comes to the doctrine of the church, the things that we believe about God, it needs to change because the world is changing. But a lot of times people make the mistake and see doctrine as the foundation of their faith. And doctrine isn't. Doctrine is an expression of the foundation, which is Jesus. So we always have to work through our doctrine from the foundation of Jesus in in this world that we live in. Things are always changing. You know, there was a time in the church history a few hundred years ago where there was the Copernican Revolution. They discovered, Copernicus discovered, that the earth is not the center of the universe. And that was a big scandal in the church. I'm not quite sure why, but like all of a sudden... It threw the church into, like, how are we going to work through our doctrine? If you held on to, if, if you had made doctrine your foundation in that day, guess what? That discovery that the earth is not the center of the universe, all of a sudden, you fall away. Because you're not built on Jesus. You were built on, an, on a doctrinal idea. Back in the 1800s, the issue of slavery came up in America. A lot of Christians were at the forefront of this issue. Which is interesting because the very Bible, there are some passages in the Old Testament that you can say are pro-slavery, or at least indifferent on it. In the New Testament, it's kind of indifferent. You know, I mean, Paul, he says, you know, there there were slaves and free people in the church. (laughs) It's not like they were crusading against it. But the church began to to be on the forefront of saying slavery is, is wrong. People should not be owned by other people. That was a doctrinal issue that had to be wrestled through. I know in the Vineyard Church, the, you know, six or seven years ago, they wrestled through the question of women in ministry. There's some passages in the New Testament that look like, man, women need to shut up in church and don't say anything and don't get on the stage. Don't, don't talk to a guy <laughs> in a, in a, from a place of authority. But the church had to wrestle through that. Those are doctrinal issues, and we need to always wrestle through the issues of our day that present themselves, but we wrestle through them from from the foundation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the the source of our unity. And so as a Christian, whether you're a Catholic or whether you're Greek Orthodox or Anglican or Pentecostal or Baptist, if you have the same foundation as me of Jesus Christ, then we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our foundation. Now, we may have very different ideas about doctrine. You know, I've learned a lot of things from from Catholics, but I believe very different things in my doctrine. I've learned a lot of things from from Baptists, but I've got different doctrine. But that's okay. We can have our differences. Our source of unity is not our doctrine. It's the foundation. You get that? And so in this church, I'm sure that there's a lot of different ideas if we pressed you about, you know, kind of your beliefs on God and the church and stuff. That's okay. As long as we're all committed to, to work from the same foundation. So that's our source of unity, Jesus. You with me? So we got uh, our, our foundation. Uh, and then the also fear of conflict. I've had a few, few times recently, not with people in the church, but with people outside the church who 
situations pop up, and, and I get a text from them about something really tough. And I text them back, can we talk? They won't talk. <laughs> and I think there's a fear of like, if we talk, you're going to hurt my feelings or I'm going to hurt your feelings. As, as a church, we need to be committed to, to, to walk through conflict together. If you're a part of this church, I mean, if you, if you hang around here long and you get to know people, you're going to get your feelings hurt or you're going to hurt my feelings or we're going to disagree or something. We're going to butt heads. It's inevitable. Just like in marriage, right? I mean, when I hear somebody in marriage tell me, oh, I never, me and my, me and my wife never fight, I'm like, there's something wrong. <laughs> if you never have conflict with your spouse, then somebody's not communicating. It's like somebody's going to go postal someday. Somebody's going to blow up. I'd much, you know, the first pastor I ever had was this Messianic Jewish guy from, uh, he was a professor up at a Bible college in Dallas, had like five doctorate degrees, and he said, me and my wife, we fight all the time. But at least we're communicating. I was like, yes. So that was one of my first lessons as a Christian. But, but conflict is inevitable. If, you, if you're going to be a part of a body of people, you're going ha- to go through conflict. And we need to learn how to do that in a good way, that, that we talk with each other. We're honest and open with each other. If we've got an issue that we don't just bury it and cover it up or, or gossip and slander people, that, that, that we, we come to one another in humility and love and share the truth. We need to do that. So we have pride, a failure to realize our, our, our foundation of unity, a fear of conflict. And then finally, we don't place a high enough value on relationships. As I said a minute ago, we, we really think relationships and community is optional for us as Christians in America. Like, you know, I like this church. It's nice. I like the worship. I like the coffee. It's, it's good and everything. <sighs> But I got into a fight with so-and-so, and and I'm not ever coming back. (laughs) We run from conflict. We don't don't realize that that valuing relationships, that that that's that's part of where we grow. I've seen people who have been Christians for decades who are, are just stunted. They're stuck. They're like little kids in the faith. They've not grown. They've been around church for years, but they've, they've not grown up. They're not mature at all. Because every time something offends them, they just leave that group and go on to somewhere else. And they never, they never have to work through things. They never value relationships. And I know there's times in life where God has you move on and stuff, and, and, and he's done that with me. But if you're finding yourself, it's just the same for, for people who find themselves going from one relationship to the next. You know, our, our culture celebrates that on reality TV. You see a guy that's going from one girl to the next to the next. That's a problem. I mean, I've got, I know guys my age, old guys, that, uh, <laughs> that are stuck in a perpetual state of adolescence. They're, they're, they're trying to, to, they're going from one girl to the next. And the thing is, yeah, it's fun in the moment. But they never find out what real love is because you can't. You can't find out what real love is if there's never commitment, if there's never commitment to relationships. We don't value relationships often the way that God values them. I want to read uh, a a, a bit of a lengthy passage from uh, Ephesians. Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, he says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. 
Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Do you, do you hear this language here that Paul is using? He's, he's talking about our attitudes towards one another, right? Dude, work at unity. Don't just work at trying not to cuss at people when you're driving in New Orleans. Work at unity because your relationships with people in, in, your, in your faith community, that's more important than probably even your, your cussing in the car, okay? Work at it. Strive for it. Bear with one another in love. There is only one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We're not separated. As we sang this morning, we are one through Jesus. Now, Jesus is the foundation of that oneness. Verse 11, he says, Christ gave him... Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? He's talking about maturity. Do you, if, you, if you truly want to grow as a Christian, it doesn't really have that much to do with your beliefs or even your daily devotional times. It has a lot to do with your relationships with other people. Learn how to be in relationship with other people. Learn how to hear God and other people. Learn how to read the Bible with other people. Learn how to pray uh, with other people. Learn how to, to ask for forgiveness. Learn how to ask for prayer when you're struggling. Learn how to pray for other people. Don't go it alone. If you do that, you're going to grow into maturity. But you can lock yourself in a room and read the Bible six hours a day and only listen to Christian music and only watch Christian TV and you can be an infant 20 years from now, spiritually speaking, because you're not around people. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not let the devil have a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slandering, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I know this is a lot to read from the Bible this morning. It's all right, though. But you know this, the sins that Paul is listening here? 
He's anchoring them in the, in the context of our relationship with one another. The things that are going to kill unity are uh, rage, uh, wrath, malice, anger, brawling, slandering. He said, give those up because you've been forgiven by Jesus Christ himself. You be a conduit of that. This morning we're going to close by taking communion together. Um, we're going to do it maybe a little bit different than we normally do it. Uh, instead of having somebody present co- uh, communion to you, you can come down here and take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. But we're going to do this as we sing the song that we sang from the beginning. So I ask that, that after you take communion or before or while you're standing in line, let, let's worship together in the process. Let's celebrate what Jesus has done, the good news of the gospel, that it doesn't matter where you come from, that it doesn't matter which side of the tracks or what race you are, that, that, that you get in on the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we sing these songs in a minute, I want you to take a piece of this bread representing the body of Jesus Christ, broken so that we could be put back together. Broken so that we would be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. We'd be made into a new people. We'd be made into His body. And dip it in this cup representing the blood of Jesus, the blood of the new covenant. That we get to experience newness of life based not on the best that we can do, but on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So as we sing this song, feel free to come up and take communion.